Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwall-Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Hello and welcome to Regenerative by Design, a podcast where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. On this podcast, we will explore the side of food that most people forget about. And today, I have guest Don Sharman here to talk to us about some very fascinating history having to do with regenerative agriculture, seed sovereignty, and family legacy farms. Don, how are you doing? We are doing great. Uh, thanks for the invitation and uh, welcome to rainy Palouse country down here. Yeah, that's a welcome sight after so many months of pretty extreme drought. Are people happy to be having rain? Oh, yes. We always take rain this time of year. Yeah. So, Don, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. Where do you live and what do you do? I'm a fifth generation uh, farmer down here in Palouse country. I was gone for many, many decades. Uh, Returned a few years ago and uh, started uh, re-entering the ag world. Uh, my focus was on looking for ways to value add in an ecologically sound way to uh, production agriculture on a, on a small basis, kind of for small and medium enterprises to increase revenues on a per acre basis. Okay, so there's a lot of things we could discuss just in that sentence. <laughs> so let's back up just a second. For our listeners, the Palouse area is a farming, it's a very rich, very famous actual farming area that is in eastern Washington and parts of Idaho. And, you know, you have a very fascinating history in that your family actually homesteaded. Would you talk a little bit about that and how you ended up in the middle of beautiful Palouse country and farming with your brother? Uh, again, a few years ago, I opted just to return uh, from uh, other ventures out in, uh, in the world. And again, uh, we looked or I looked around and uh, saw that a lot of my friends who stayed here, the more small, medium enterprise farmers, were having struggles uh, uh, financially to some extent, uh, given a lot of commodity uh, industrial uh, food systems. So we, I took it. We decided to take it upon ourselves to look for models to again to be able to increase revenues on a per acre basis. So we are very focused on land raised grains and biodiversity. Land raised grains can be considered uh, more in uh, ge generic terms heirloom land heirloom grains. And so we collected seeds from around the world, oftentimes 100 seeds at a time. And then we began to grow out with friends uh, on their farms. Then we started looking for a farm. 
And the area here, my family are German-Russian immigrants. They came in the late 1800s. Uh, they broke out the land in eastern Washington here where we're located. And there was actually a colony farm where they would transit through when they would come from the old country prior to go getting their 160 acres of homestead land. And so we opted to buy uh, the small farm where our uh, bloodline relatives actually came. And it was really kind of a commune type situation where they, where they grew relative to old world uh, farming practices. And which in essence now is kind of really referred to as regenerative. And so we opted to adopt that kind of a model uh, to grow land race heirloom grains. That's one of the four pillars that our platform is based on. The other platform then, uh, so you can look at it as the four pillars is what we call it. So first pillar is heirloom land race grains. It all starts with the seed. The second pillar then is uh, regenerative agricultural practices. Uh, the third pillar is we develop a seed to table uh, platform. Uh, which is in essence a vertically integrated uh, system. And then fourthly, in terms of our marketing, our product, we choose a decentralized uh, uh, regime of uh, working with neighborhood venues where then we consider ourselves not growing really uh, tons of barley or bushels of wheat. We grow pints of beer and loaves of bread because our end use is centered around uh, brewing, distilling industry, as well as baking. So we have been or partnered in a small venue in Spokane, Washington called the Grain Shed, in which we uh, uh, access and have uh, degrees of control over every link in the supply chain, literally from the seed to the soil all the way to the downstream to uh, pints of beer, uh, retail level in, in the restaurant. From seed to soil, right to your pint. I love it. Um, Donna, it's always amazing to me how you've taken a set of problems that many farmers across the country and around the world are up against and used that entrepreneurial spirit and ingenuity to rethink our systems and try to crack the code of how you can make what you're doing have more integrity, have more impact, and then ultimately be more profitable. And this focus on seeds is so important. And today, our topic is actually going to be really taking a focus on seeds, because I think that even people who are familiar with regenerative agriculture, maybe they're familiar with um, farm-to-table movement and the locavore movement, I think that most people are still probably a little bit um, lacking confidence in what a land race variety is and what the importance of seed sovereignty is in our agricultural system. So I would love for us to take a moment and really focus on seeds. And a few little tidbits that, you know, our readers may or may not know is that we can't talk about regenerative systems without talking about biodiversity, which starts at the seeds. And over the last hundred years, we've lost 75% of all of our genetic diversity of all of our food crops including including animals. And we've seen this massive seed industry consolidation just over the last three decades. So seed sovereignty is something that I'm shocked that more people don't know about. It's probably intentionally suppressed. And it's a big deal globally because in this day and age, 
Four companies, multinational companies, own well over half of the seeds in the entire world, and they're considered intellectual property. And we'll talk about that next. But first, if you could define what a land race variety is and how you guys get these unique varieties and maybe explore the the intellectual property or lack thereof. Uh, Landrace greens are uh, ancient pre-hybridized varieties of wheat or barley, uh, small grains is what we focus on, that uh, really flourished in time immemorial uh, throughout areas of the world where they adapted to the local environmental uh, conditions, as it were. So we like to say that landrace grains are really nature's natural way of selection and adaption to the local environments. And in doing so, we develop distinctive uh, plant-based, uh, incredibly robust and distinct flavor profiles, but within uh, harmony with natural uh, uh, natural growing systems. And, and this is what, you know, we've uh, talked to about before. It's the idea of mimicking, uh, mimicking nature's way. So what we're really doing... Uh, uh, that differentiates us from more of the modern hybrids and commodity-based industrial chemical agriculture is that we're reverting or recovering or regenerating to how things were done for millennia. And quite frankly, it's how things were done by my grandfather prior to the, the industrial changes, uh, essentially post-World War II is what uh, we're really dividing on this camp. Right. Yeah. Things changed a lot after World War II. And um, it's again, I think it's something that is understated and under miss, you know, minimally understood by the general public of how rapid of an evolution we've had since the end of World War II, as far as getting away from our traditional food systems, all in the name of efficiency, which I think it's really fair to always point out that I think the heart of the motivation was in the right place. Like we had global food insecurity, especially following the war, and people were really motivated about how can we coax more yield out of every acre of farmland, but at what cost? And that's kind of where we're at now, and especially when you look at the global soil depletion being so severe that the UN said a couple of years ago, we've got 60 harvests left before it's done, and it's all so, you know you know, really sterilized that we can't grow food anymore. So with your Landrace varieties that you're working with, Don, how do you see them working into a world where we have scarcity of, of good quality soil? Well, in current industrial agricultural, soil degradation is a, is a real issue. Uh, massive chemical inputs, massive uh, carbon-based uh, fertilizer inputs, it is really destructive to, to the soil profiles. And if you don't have the soil, if you don't have healthy soil, you really can't have healthy, healthy plants. And given the soil degradation, there's, and in conjunction with the, the you know, very significant uh, uh, chemical inputs, there are really significant existential threats, uh, not least of which is the soil sterility, super weeds going on, uh, and uh, we firmly come down on climate change issues relative to carbon sequestration. And again, you address the idea of the proprietary germplasm that really narrows the monocultural crops that are out there that also lends itself to 
a great deal of unexpected uh, uh, realities that come down the, the pipeline, and, as well as uh, unintended consequences, uh, quite frankly, of health issues relative to uh, soil health, to plant health, to human health as it gets into the food supply system. And, and so we right, look to try right. to mitigate those things. And uh, with the land race grains, uh, it's the land race heirlooms grain. It's really about nature designed uh, through natural adaption, the land race grains, not to require these artificial inputs. And so land race grains by genetic makeup are low input. We select uh, the varieties that we look at from around, we develop from around the, the world, literally. So we look for drought resistant varieties of uh, carbon sequestration is important. And uh, this the same, the idea of biodiversity uh, as well. And uh, so we focus on these seeds that then will adapt to uh, the local environment. And as you're saying, you know, and that's what, you know, biodiversity really is about uh, an ecosystem uh, level with uh, species diversity and genetic diversity within a species. And then there's a term that's referred to as uh, plasticity. And plasticity is simply uh, in kind of uh, um, easier terms to understand without getting in the weeds about it, is the ability of a plant to change its phenotype uh, kind of in, in response to different environments. And that's termed plasticity. And uh, it's a particularly important uh, characteristic that enables plants to adapt to rapid changes in their, in their surroundings. The uh, heirloom grains were uh, very focused on survivability. And so they had genetic markers that uh, really enhanced their survivability. And, and I guess I should say a, a phenotype, and, and I'm not a scientist, but a phenotype is kind of uh, characteristics that uh, you can observe in localized individual settings from the interaction of the genetic markers of the plant with the environment. And, and so right, that's what right. we look at to try to, and, and as a, with what your, your term that you've used in our conversations, it's mimicking nature, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a really important part because when you consider what you're discussing here, you've got a certain set of genes and you work mostly with wheat for our listeners who aren't familiar with Palouse Heritage Farms and the grain shed. There, it's a it's a wheat and barley focus, which much of the Palouse is dedicated to wheat farming and it grows exceptional wheat. Wheat is a fascinating plant from the perspective of its genetics. It's got very complex genetics. In fact, more complex even than the human genome in many ways. So there are so many ways in which wheat can be expressed through phenotype expression. And much of the modern breeding has really reduced much of this gene expression so that it's hyper-focused on the endosperm, which is the starchy component, and minimizing all of these other components of the wheat plant that may have really valuable, you know, drought resistance characteristics, but also from a health perspective, many secondary and tertiary phytocompounds, which provide nutrition that we don't even understand. Um, we've done a lot of research into nutrition, but it's all been focused on just a very small percentage of the chemicals that are actually present in foods. And wheat is a very good example of that. So with your land race varieties, if we could just talk for a moment about you 
I'm assuming um, you grow your wheat and you set aside seed so you can plant next year, which actually is a very novel thing in modern farming. Could you talk about the seed kind of politics for a second of like, are most farmers allowed to keep their seeds and replant them or is that a big no-no? As you alluded to previously, there is a, uh, a, a big push for large transnational uh, agricultural firms to consolidate uh, all of the seed. Uh, and in doing so, they have put uh, in the in the locked in the closet a lot of these land race old grains and they're developing hybrids that are really geared towards a massive industrial commercialization and so that limits the ability so in doing so with hybrids then uh, it's a matter of intellectual property where they own the seeds and and yes they do it is restricted for uh, in the brewing world for example there's and we grow barley is actually one of the main things that we grow. Uh, but in conjunction with regenerative practices, we do aggressive crop rotations, uh, and, uh, cover crops, uh, minimum tillage, these kind of things. But at getting back to the seed part, yes, the seeds are controlled by uh, a handful of large companies. Uh, uh, from a commercial perspective, they want their seeds with their proprietary rights, uh, you know, into the food chain. And uh, so, yes, it's very currently farmers cannot uh, hold back their own seed for if they utilize many of the modern hybrids. The old land races or heirloom, well, heirlooms are considered open source uh, and they're not uh, subject to uh, IP uh, regulation or restriction. And we look at it as well. So the seed issue is very important. But because of the intensive chemical uh, usage and uh, herbicide usage and uh, high, high volume uh, nitrogen carbon based inputs, the land is essentially sterile, sterile, excuse me. And, and so, you know, we look at the soil as what we grow. We put these seeds that can adapt to the soil and to the uh, conditions on a local uh, in, in a local environment, but we look at the soil as really the trigger mechanism. Uh, the soil is really a living system, and so we like to think of it as uh, just as mm -hmm. uh, with your pet or your your you know your children or whatever. If you're a custodian or, or steward over the soil. You have to feed it properly and take care of it in order for it to, to be healthy. And so healthy soil is really what regenerative agriculture is all about. These land-raised seeds are put in there because they are, again, low input. Uh, they're more in terms of how and working in harmony with nature, as it were. And so healthy soil with a, with a, with a low input seed that... Uh, again, has uh, reduced endosperm and uh, proportionally greater germ and bran, where really all of your minerals come from, and more importantly, where all your flavor comes from. And, and so if you have healthy plants, uh, then the healthy plants go into food beverage product, in our case, uh, specifically breads, flowers, beer. And, and in doing so, then you're, you're just having a, a, a 
self-feeding uh, closed loop of healthy healthiness all the way around. And uh, the seeds are integral to it, but again, uh, these are more complex systems without simplistic solutions. So, so we look at uh, a stewardship of a living system, again, it, it being the soil. And then the plant uh, is a living system that comes from the seed. So these are all, you know, full circle kind of uh, complexities that, that we're trying to address. We're not all the way there, by the way, but we are transitioning to, to make it a much tighter system. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, that really brings us back to that overall concept of, you know, how do we shift our systems um, that drive our agriculture, our food and, you know, beyond to having a more regenerative model where we really focus on the root um, of the system, which in agriculture clearly is the soil and it is its own living system. Um, the rhizosphere, which is the name of that part of the soil that contains the roots and funguses and bacteriums and a, a bunch of tiny little microorganisms, which are very, very important. It goes way beyond the typical worms that most people are familiar with. Um, it's it's really a, a central focus of regenerative agriculture. So as we're moving forward and trying to design a world that will be sustainable and regenerative into the future, what are some things that we can work on as consumers um, to participate in contributing to a regenerative food system? As consumers, I, I think it's important to first clearly understand what are the existential uh, threats or issues at hand. And in doing so, I, I very much uh, like uh, Wendell Berry's comment, and uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, that uh, if you eat, you participate in agriculture. And that's followed by Michael Pollan's uh, uh, line that says, uh, and, and if you uh, eat and you participate in agriculture, eating is also a political uh, act. The politics of food, you know, are such that, uh, again, uh, very large corporate interests have their own agenda. These are complex issues. But, uh, you know, they're moving uh, again into the uh, continuing in these industrial models. And so the consumer, uh, what they can do is, again, vote with your dollar. Uh, as far as changing uh, these uh regimes or systems uh, of crop production and food in the in the in the culture and whatnot uh, we our tact is the fourth pillar of what we deal with is uh, developing uh, relationships between a group of farmers and a neighborhood community uh, we're very much in a decentralized uh, uh, platform so we see it from the ground up as opposed to the top down. Uh, and we have major differentiation in what we're doing. So we, we focus on biodiversity against conventional practices. Uh, uh, then again, low input. Uh, we deal primarily in the Palouse with dry land. So we're really dealing with water resource management as opposed to very heavy irrigation, which isn't so important here, but in uh, many other areas, Midwest, California, like uh, irrigation with resources is a big issue. So we also focus on sustainable practices and uh, with soil health. But again, then uh, most importantly, uh, is the flavor of the food product. And so uh, again, the, the consumer uh, 
should you know be aware of these really things. So education is a huge component of what we're trying to do as well. But mostly we look at it as decentralized and starting from local neighborhoods. We call it reconnecting the urban and the rural and having a, a group of farmers uh, adopt a, uh, a neighborhood uh, venue and the neighborhood community adopting a group of farmers. So the supply chain goes all the way through, again, from the seed to the table of the, of our, of the customer group and the community in which we're focused on. Right. And this brings up a really important point because so many participants in the food service sector, brewing included, if they were having in-person, you know, brew houses and, and tasting rooms, suffered terribly during COVID. And for you guys, um, when I would stop in to pick up a loaf of bread or whatever at the Green Shed in Spokane, you guys were jamming all through COVID. And I think that it speaks to the strength of bringing that decentralized connectivity back more to a local um, level to where, like you said, the farmers adopt the neighborhood and the neighborhood adopts the farmers because other people were scrambling to find bread or flour and ordering it from anywhere they could find and shelves were bare for many, many months during COVID. I'd love for you to just speak to that and the strength of these um, emerging decentralized models that are popping up across the country. Yes, and see, so that's the third pillar that Police Heritage uh, rests on, and that is the vertically integrated system. So, you know, in the common parlance, you know, they, they address it as resilience. So our food system uh, localized here. Uh, you know, we're just a few miles down the road from Metropolitan Spokane and the like. Uh, so we were just able to, uh, again, have uh, the ability to control, pivot, and direct the whole, the whole supply chain. And so we, we never lack for grain. Uh, you know, we mill, we have cleaners that we're vested with, uh, malt houses locally. Uh, and, and so we have the mill, uh, we have the, 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 the ovens and the like. And, and so we, we just never, quite frankly, uh, skipped a beat. Our, our, and it helped a lot, too, quite with COVID specific in terms of disruptive events, uh, which can certainly be other disruptive events other than COVID, as we're now seeing maybe overseas and the like. Uh, but uh, we also then integrate uh, uh, different aspects of, the, of these grains into our uh, food system that we uh, provide at the grain shed. So we were, in essence, kind of a mini restaurant as well, and uh, so because we had the bakery, we were considered essential. And so we were able yet to then pivot quickly to uh, have delivery service, uh, curbside service, uh, where we were delivering uh, pre-made dinners. Uh, we could then uh, also, with the way the new regulations are, deliver beer and deliver bed, bread. And so we were doing that for a while. And quite frankly, uh, people would look us up on the internet, find us there, and we were shipping flour to Seattle people uh, because uh, their shelves were empty. So resilience, uh, you know, again, the words such as food sovereignty, uh, food security uh, were, were realized in, uh, in practice. And, uh, you know, we were really happy just to be, you know, part of that. But again, that's being directed that's based on what our fundamental tenets are of what we're trying to do, again, with uh, healthy seeds that's available to everybody, 
that's uh, very environmentally friendly in terms of seeds. Uh, secondly, regenerative practices. Third, the, again, the, the vertical aspect of it all in terms of resiliency and controlling the supply chain. And fourthly, working on a decentralized neighborhood level. Right. And and I what I love about what you guys have done, it's been really inspirational to watch after the last few years. And for those of you who don't know Dawn and don't know myself, um, a lot of my journey into regenerative food systems and regenerative farming in general actually has been inspired by Dawn here, who we've spoken, you know, at length and in depth over the years. And it's been very formative to the way I have viewed the entire system coming together, coming from a health professional and scientific background. Although I did grow up farming, um, I grew up, you know, conventional farming. There was no mention of organic or any other practices that would be indicative of long-term sustainability thinking. It was like high yields today. That was always the focus. And I love how this is all coming around to this regenerative by design concept that we really can't talk about food without talking about health, climate, and rural economics. And that's something that we need to remind the world at large that all of these things are very closely intertwined. And I think that you have demonstrated the resiliency and strength of, of taking that model on very intentionally and rebuilding it to have an authentic grassroots feel. And so, you know, it's interesting, you know, with the decentralization model, um, most people, I think, underestimate the control of the general flower um, availability across the country and around the world. And, and that if there's one supply chain that gets taken out or is vulnerable, it could, it could spell out long-term lack of that food, um, because of the system, because it is so centralized that with the efficiencies that come along with centralization, there also is an increased vulnerability. And from a national security standpoint, I'm not the first one to say that food security is national security, but I know that there's a growing interest in looking at our domestic resiliency as far as food systems and how that affects our actual national security beyond, you know, military, et cetera, and the grid, all of that. What, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, very much so. Uh, yes. And again, what, what, what we're looking to, again, there's just these consolidation and centralizations of virtually every sector in the economy. And uh, we, we uh, are basically what we're doing is looking to establish a pilot that could demonstrate uh, proof of product, proof of concept that could be replicated. You know, uh, it isn't easy by any extent, but, uh, you know, if uh, a, a few guys from Palouse country could do it with uh, some uh, progressive, aggressive folks uh, in a metropolitan area, be it Spokane. Uh, we're a pretty open book about helping other people establish these systems. That's why we speak all over at these things uh, with you and whatever, just to try to share the information that we're doing so they can replicate it as well. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's it's essential. Uh, uh, again, there's so many issues of these disruptive existential threats, you know, be it pathogens uh, because of monocultures uh, in uh, in, in the fields, uh, which is very real, and we don't want to get in the weeds about a bunch of agronomic and genetic issues, but but uh, pathogen and disease. There's disease in plants just as well. We're having COVID and the like uh, uh, diseases in people, uh, malnutrition issues. Uh, the biggest thing is from a lot of these things too, food sec or national security, uh, 
even in the context of the economic impact of legacy costs from a multitude of health issues. Uh, so this, again, there's a complexity here that uh, is not with simplistic answers. Now, there's probably lots of different ways uh, you know, that can be approached. We're sticking to our lane. I, I like to just say, you know, there's many streams that feed the river of progressive change in dealing with these existential threats. And again, I will reiterate, not the least of which is radical soil degradation. Uh, the soil in the Midwest and in eastern Washington are virtually sterile and would grow virtually nothing without high chemical input. And that itself, to me, is a national security issue. Uh, but again, uh, there are very large, uh, uh, very powerful vested interests that uh, are reluctant. Yeah, and we haven't even touched on the health implications of exposure to those chemicals, but and we, we'll save that for another time. But one thing that I, you know, I myself and many people have thought about, especially since COVID created so many logistical hurdles, and I knew a lot of farmers who were very, very nervous about okay, what's going to happen this spring if the boats from China don't show up with our fertilizers or the boats from Russia don't show up with our seeds? And I think very few people truly realize um, the impact of that because we don't have a domestically stable um, flywheel that supplies these inputs that would keep our food service, our food system moving forward if we suddenly didn't have the international commerce that we do today. I would love to hear your thoughts on that briefly before we wrap it up. Yeah, very true. And I guess this is in the moment right now. Uh, you know, last year, the disruptive event was the drought. I talked to my grower friends down in California. That's a real threat. Again, they might have it. Uh, they, they may be entering again now if they don't get, uh, you know, some really good rain in uh, March and April. So you have a climactic uh, disruptive event that's definitely uh correlated to climate change. Any farmer knows the reality of climate change. Yeah. Uh, and, and likewise, uh, so because of now the interruption of the transportation lines, be it the uh, uh, oh, ships geez, coming yeah. in, the reality is here in the Palouse, chemical inputs have doubled in the year. Right. Carbon-based, uh, you know, synthetic fertilizers have, have literally doubled. Yeah. Uh, as well. So for the small, medium enterprises, uh, you know, again, now because of these disruptive events uh, and, and not notwithstanding uh, being sick all the time for a lot of people with labor issues that, uh, you know, these are these are compelling things that are putting a great deal of pressure on the small, medium farm enterprises. Correct. And, and so, yes, these disruptive events, uh, you know, they're critical to kind of the. The, not only the health of the national security, local security. And so these are measures that we take to take in hand and be somewhat self-responsible uh, uh, for doing this and to mitigating these these problems that are very real and are current. Right. And I think, you know, so many people truly feel like a sense of panic when they think about this and they're left feeling somewhat hopeless. Like they really don't know what to do to make a difference. They don't know where to even start to try to participate in a, in a worldview that gives a future where we're not, you know, completely, 
you know, lost, <laughs> you know, like lost at sea with all these huge issues. So I always want to, you know, talk about some big uncomfortable issues so that we expose them. And for me personally, I feel like so much of what we're doing and what I'm not a farmer, but what you and many other exceptional farmers are doing with these disruptive models, with this focus on building back soil as a treasured national resource and creating resilient domestic supply chains, it it really gives me a sense of hope. And I've decided that one of the things I want to make really consistent with this podcast, I am new to podcast hosting, so this is my very first adventure in this world, but I always really want to leave our final message to, um, to have a focus on hope. Like, what is your hope for the future? And what are you doing to share that hope with others? One of the facets of what we're after is uh, uh, trying to be a positive impact again within the local community, uh, be it rural or urban neighborhood. And all of these uh, negative factors uh, also really play into, and it's not popular either, but real mental health issues of despondency and the like. And right. So we try to focus on the fact that to be very inclusive. And so we believe that uh, ethnic groups, uh, uh, religious groups, aside from all the radicalized elements on, quite frankly, either side of the spectrum here, that there are core transcendent values that everybody uh, innately knows. And so we try to focus on ethics. We try to focus on the moral components of doing business and the like. And at the mm -hmm. end of the day, uh, we feel that there are human responsibilities of stewardship of these resources that we have been given and that it is incumbent upon us to value these resources, including seeds and soil land, uh, the children, and and your neighbors uh, and that to conduct mm -hmm. yourself in a, in a in an ethical business manner right so that that sense of community is so strong in all of the people i talk to in the regenerative world from finance to farming from cpg to ecosystem services i i find it really humbling every day i spend my day all day long talking to people who have this unbelievable and palpable you know, commitment to community and to their fellow humans. And to me, I find that extremely inspiring and it gives me a lot of hope in people. And I, I sometimes feel almost a little bit self-conscious that I look around and so many people feel really hopeless, like they've lost that trust in their fellow human or their connection to their community, whatever that community may be. And I feel like the regenerative movement has the, you know, the potential to help re- kindle that fire, that faith in each other, our faith in humanity, and our faith that we can live in harmony with our planet. Yeah, I, I affirm everything that you say. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of pushback from, a lot, again, a lot of vested interests that uh, particularly aren't interested in change. And podcasts like you're doing and other folks and where we get together and even the community sitting around the table having a beer and a sandwich and some, you know, nice bread and taste treats in these localized things is, is a real sense of camaraderie. And mm -hmm. it's, uh, I think a lot of it is uh, 
it's refreshing to reinforce each other's thinking in these positive ways. Uh, for us, you know, again, uh, uh, you know, what we're doing uh, with the, our rather avant-garde way of doing things is, you know, we say that, hey, we're, we're, we're an island of sustainability surrounded in a sea of glyphosate. And, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like maybe a, a, sometimes a bit lonely, like, why am I even yeah. doing this? But you do get a huge uh, reinforcement when you can be around like-minded people in, uh, in, in this context. And, and, and so uh, it, it's uh, the whole community aspect is where it's, where it's at as far as I'm concerned. It, it, these are grassroots issue against very compelling and obstructive uh, uh, groups and, uh, quite frankly, institutions, public and private. Yeah, no, that's great. I I love that. And thank you for expressing your feelings about that. Because, you know, honestly, like you said before, this is hard work. There is no simple answer. We're really looking at untangling a very big ball of yarn and trying to create it a, a way of organizing it so that it's more equitable, equitable and sustainable to all. So I, I appreciate all your hard work and everything that you do. And thanks for all of the hours of mentorship and education that you've provided me and many, many others. Oh, well, like I say, oh, well, certainly I don't know how much I'm doing. I just try to stick in my lane. But, uh, you know, doing these <laughs> things, uh, again, they're, they're not for the faint-hearted. Uh, they're difficult, but that's okay. And as a old mentor friend of mine uh, told me in terms of uh, individual and civic responsibility, if you're not on the edge, you're taking up too much space. <laughs> That's awesome. So on that note, Don, thank you so much for joining us. And for those of you who had the pleasure of spending any time in Spokane or residing in the Inland Northwest, make sure you stop at the Grain Shed in the Perry District of Spokane. Amazing, amazing handcrafted products. It'd be fun to have Sean the Baker on our podcast at some point as well. And Palouse Heritage Farms, which is beautiful right in the middle of Palouse country. So Don, thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope this is the first of many recorded conversations. Hey, bless your heart. And thanks for the invitation. Anything you need, give me a whistle. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.